Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Left of Greg podcast. I am Brian Marin, the host and creator of the show. As always, I will be joined by human behavior expert, Mr. Greg Williams, who the show is affectionately named after. Here on the Left of Greg show, our goal is to increase your advanced critical thinking ability through a better understanding of what we call human behavior, pattern recognition, and analysis. If you'd like to find out more about what that is, you can check out our website at arcadiacognorati.com or by following us on Facebook at HBPRA. Please help support the show by checking out our Patreon site where for just a few dollars you can have access to all kinds of episode extras, videos, and short tutorials that are updated weekly. Just click the link in the episode details that says support the show and we'll take you directly to that site. If you have any questions or would like us to cover a specific topic, please reach out to us at leftofgreg at gmail.com. On today's episode, Greg and I are joined by Air Force veteran and author Andy Brown. Andy's on the show to discuss his book, Warnings Unheeded, where he documents the events leading up to two seemingly unrelated tragedies that occurred when he was stationed at Fairchild Air Force Base in 1994. The first event that Andy talks about was the crash of a B-52 bomber that happened during a rehearsal for an upcoming air show. The second event that Andy talks about, which occurred just four days before the B-52 crash, was an active shooter attack at the hospital on base where Andy single-handedly stopped the shooter from killing more people. After leaving the Air Force, Andy investigated both incidents and found an alarming amount of pre-event indicators in the years leading up to both tragedies. Andy wrote about these indicators in great detail in his book, Warnings Unheeded, Twin Tragedies at Fairchild Air Force Base. The documented behaviors that Andy wrote about were obvious red flags in both cases. No matter what your job is or who you are, you'll definitely be able to use the information that is in the book. There's a link to the book in the episode details, and we highly recommend reading it. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the show. The great thing is I I just poured another cup of coffee in the kitchen, well away from where I am right now. I've got mine here. Iced coffee, though. It's 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 humid this morning. All right, we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, today's episode, for those of you who are listening, uh, we're actually just recording this uh, on, on July 28th, and we're kind of live streaming to Facebook. So if you haven't followed me, Brian, on Facebook, you guys go ahead and, and follow me along because we pop up on there live all the time. You guys can interact. But today, Greg and I are very honored to have on uh, author, uh, Air Force veteran, law enforcement veteran, uh, a guy with a ton of experience by the name of Andy Brown. Andy wrote the book called Warnings Unheeded, which we will get into shortly here. Um, But you kind of found us through some other folks on Facebook and said, hey, I was involved and this is what I wrote about. And then we looked it up. We're like, immediately we're like, hey, you got to get on the podcast, man, and come talk about some of these experiences. So um, I don't know. Greg, did you want to throw in something here at the beginning? I, I, I think so. Just, just uh, welcome to the show, Andy. Obviously, we're both huge fans, and and we want to uh, have a great discussion today. But I also like to talk about string theory, super string theory, the end theory, and how things happen. So, like a week and a half ago, Marin and I are uh, teaching down and conducting some investigations down in Denver, Colorado, and uh, so uh, we're walking around in COVID aware. We come by the Wincoop Brewery. So we uh, have a beer at the Wincoop before we head back to the hotel and discuss the day. So today I got a message from the Wincoop. They just opened up their new brand uh, of uh, beer that they're brewing, and it's called the Andy Brown. And so I thought, there is no (laughs) way in the world. So I immediately wrote Marin a message saying, here we go again. This is going to be one of those things where our lives intertwine and we find all of these uh, 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 relative issues that, that we've encountered together. 
Wow, that's nice. Maybe I can get somebody to send me some of that beer. <laughs> you should <laughs> maybe somebody that lives in Colorado. You never you should, know. Should at least get a discount on it. So, uh, Andy, where where are you where are you uh, joining us from today? Just so everyone kind of knows. I'm in the Spokane, Washington area. Okay, so that you're you're up where there's a. We'll just say there's a lot going on near you right now. <laughs> That's on the other side of the mountain. It's practically a different state over there in Seattle. I'm on in eastern Washington. Okay, good, good. So you're you're probably relatively safe where you're at, and and not near near the masses of of chaos. But um, yes, and I live in the sticks, so I'm pretty much removed from anything. Perfect. Well, we'll go ahead and jump in here. And we kind of want to start out just by talking about the book you wrote. So you're Air Force veteran, and then you you wrote the book uh, about some incidents that happened in about the mid 90s back in in 94, actually, uh, while you were working as kind of security forces security on Air Force Base. And one of the things that this happened, which probably most people have never heard of, is this uh, B-52 crashed, right, which is generally rare, right, that these things occur. Uh, it was a training accident, I guess you could you could say. And what you did in your book is one of the things is you kind of documented everything that led up to this, which we found incredible because, you know, anytime a story happens or we see an incident, we always go, well, there's always more to it than you think. Let's mm-hmm. wait for the investigation. So, if you could, why don't you just kind of tell everyone and tell us about what what happened with that incident and and specifically with with the pilot, this guy uh, uh, Bud Holland. Okay, sure. Yeah, in 1994, I was stationed at Fairchild Air Force Base, which is in Spokane, Washington area. And during a air show practice flight, a B-52 was doing a low-level slow turn around the control tower and banked the wings incredibly far, 90 degrees, and and plunged into the ground. And it was a tragic accident, but a lot of people had predicted that that pilot in particular was going to go down sooner or later based on his uh, behavior. He had a a history of pushing the the limits of of his aircraft. And the B-52, if you don't know, it's, it's a huge aircraft. It's bigger than some airliners. It has like 180 plus wing foot wingspan so it's like doing aerobatics in a in a jetliner pretty much and over a period of at least three years his his uh, routines and the way he flew the aircraft got increasingly more and more reckless to the point where people were refusing to even want to fly with him the b-52 is a, a crew served aircraft there's at least four people on on board the pilot and co-pilot and navigator and radar navigator and bombardier. So this was during an air show practice flight. And uh, the previous air shows, Bud Holland would, would fly the aircraft low and slow down the flight line and then pull up sharp and just rocket into the air and, and do what they called a wing over when he would reach maximum altitude right before he would stall or or the aircraft would fall back on itself. He would turn and, and let the aircraft slice through the air so he could re- regain speed and then uh, pull out of the of a dive essentially and that was incredibly uh, risky some people said if you do a wing over in a b-52 you'll rip the tail off so he did maneuvers like that and he would also do low uh, low altitude banks where he would bank the wings of the aircraft 90 degrees and then pull out right before a stall 
And doing that at, at high altitude is pretty risky, but doing it uh, 150, 200 feet off the ground is pretty much uh, suicidal. So yeah, I just real quick for, for everyone, because I know like Greg and I read the book, a lot of people have them, because you go into great detail about where this came from and how it started. And, and you know, air shows are super popular in the US. You know, it's great for the military to kind of show off new toys, gadgets, tricks that they can do. It's fun for people to go watch. Like if you've ever seen anything like that, it's super cool just to see all this stuff in action, right? And then now, typically a B-52, like you said, this is a giant, big, old bomber. I mean, since the got really got to start in the Cold War. And like you said, it, it picture almost like a 747 doing aerial acrobatics. It's not not what it's designed for. And, and what, you know, you documented in there is this guy was basically exceeding any recommendations or exceeding any limitations on what this aircraft could do. Is that kind of like, and, a, and, and I think it's more, more important too, Brian is to understand that, that it's Colonel Bud Holland and that this guy, it wasn't his first rodeo. So, so this pilot not only had been around, but he had been doing these maneuvers for quite some time and everybody kind of knew the larger than life, Bud Holland was up to something. He was going to do something. Uh, and, and I think, uh, along with the title of the book, Andy, Nobody did enough. Nobody did enough to stop what could have been prevented on that day. Absolutely. The um, lower ranking officers and, and air crewmen, they tried to do something, but they were pretty much helpless. Their hands were tied when they would complain to upper management. They would say, like, what are we going to do as a captain? You want to go and tell a lieutenant colonel that he can't fly the aircraft the way he wants to? And also, you know, for a person who pushed the uh, safety limitations of the aircraft but holland was in a interesting position he was the chief of standaval which was the uh, organization that was in charge of maintaining and enforcing safety regulations standards and evaluation folks that are listening and watching along and and here the the publications list clearly what can be done and what can't be done and and this wasn't uh, first of all we're talking about a pilot we're talking about a hero we're talking about a veteran we're not trying to disparage his name or his family name or anything else we're saying that he took risks he shouldn't have been taken and he did them with other people around and thank god it wasn't in the middle of the air show and he turned it into a lawn dart and plowed through the grandstands killing a bunch of folks you know that that could have been the outcome as well andy yeah absolutely where he uh ended up crashing would have been spectators had had it not been a practice flight. If it would had occurred just a few days later at the actual air show, there would have been a lot more casualties on the ground. But you bring up a good point. It was a huge aircraft. They call them heavies. They're um, they're not designed for aerobatics. They're not single engine jet fighters. In fact, the Air Force regulations at the time prohibited heavy aircraft from participating in, in air shows. Even a straight and level flyby was discouraged. They were relegated to static display on the flight line during, during air shows. But Fairchild in particular had a history of using heavy aircraft in air shows without seeking uh, approval because it wouldn't have been approved. But the, the leadership over a period of several years pretty much just turned a, turned a blind eye to it because of Lieutenant Colonel Holland's uh, charm and just because he was a good old boy and and was a good pilot, and I think they wanted to see what he could do with the aircraft and and uh, show what what Fairchild and, and the B fifty two could do. No, and and we we 
you know, we all see that in different areas, right? So yeah, we're talking about specifically with a, a B-52 pilot in the Air Force, so military stuff, but but this this goes in, you know, we all have experiences with that guy or girl because this guy was was trusted, obviously, who is leading he was head of the standards and evaluation for that for that unit or for that base, I believe, uh, for that wing. And then he, he not only that, he was a like Vietnam combat veteran. He was a well-respected pilot, meaning he knew his aircraft. In fact, he knew how to push it past the aircraft's limitations. And, you know, we get into that's no different than, you know, we always tell a story, you know, a guy out of the military coming back from a combat deployment and it's like, okay, I'm going to go buy a motorcycle and they get on the motorcycle and man, at first they hit that corner a little too fast and they get all those, you know, electrochemical neurotransmitters start kicking that epinephrine, that dopamine, the cortisol, uh, the everything just starts, starts going right. They get that adrenaline dump and they, oh my God, I'm not going to make it. And then they make it out of that turn. And then now all of a sudden what, like, oh, well I made it out doing 40 the next time they hit that turn, it's going to be 45. And then the next time it's going to be 50. And eventually, you know, that, that new baseline gets set. And eventually, in order to feel that thrill, in order to do that, I, I have to keep pushing it. Well, in this case, this guy, I mean, you're a, he's a B-52 pilot. You, you, it, it only has so much structural integrity before you're going to push it past its limitations. And, you know, what you documented so well in, in that book was a lot of the different incidents even here where someone did say, Hey, like we got to do something about this or, Hey, this is unsafe or well. And then someone comes in and goes, well, Hey, you know, that's bud, you know, he's, he's a, you know, been around, he blew missions in Vietnam. We, he's a good old boy. Like you said, we know he knows what he's doing. Don't worry about it. And, and those are the people on the periphery. There are the ones that they have some responsibility in this. You know they what I'm saying? Do. So I, it was just interesting how you were able to kind of document all the, all the ways that, uh, that, that occurred. Yeah. In, in the book, there was a, a series of incidents where he demonstrated gross disregard for safety and especially the safety of his crewmen. The uh, two crew members that fly in the, the bottom of the aircraft, radar navigator and navigator bombardier, they eject downward when they have to leave the aircraft, there's ejection seats on the on the plane and the pilot and co-pilot eject up out of the top of the aircraft when the hatch blows. But the uh, lower two crew members, they eject down and, and they need a minimum clearance. And he frequently flew below that clearance. So even if they did decide to try to get out of the airplane, they, they would never have made it. Jeez. And there's a, what do you guys call it? A institutional amnesia? La, yeah, la, yeah, la, it's lack supposed of inst- to be institutional <laughs> memory. Yeah, but that's great. No, great that's a good one. From an Air Force guy, too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the, the comment in, in your book, Andy, one of the comments by a person that was evaluating said he had the best hands of any pilot he'd ever flown with. And this guy knew more about the B-52 than anything. So what? And, and that what's in it for me, the so what of that incident is we're willing sometimes to accept that type of behavior. Because he is that good old boy. He is a, he's a hell of a pilot. He was a hell of a pilot all the way up until this incident. Yeah, absolutely. There were quite a few people that said he was the best pilot in the Air Force, even people who knew he was going to crash one day. They they um, knew he was very skilled and talented, but they also knew he had lost his uh, respect for safety. Yeah, that institutional amnesia prior to this incident, there was, at, at the time, Fairchild had B-52s and KC-135s, air, air refuelers. 
they basically are a jetliner that's designed for uh, carrying a lot of fuel and, and refueling aircraft in the air. And there was an incident in 87, just a few years prior to this crash, where there was a B-52 and a KC-135 practicing for a, an air show. And the, the KC-135 flew through the wake of a B-52 and crashed right near the flight line, right where a group of spectators would have been had it not been a practice flight. So the uh, Air Force promised Congress after an investigation that they would never use heavy aircraft in a in an air show again. But then they, they kind of forget the lessons from their history and and things like this happen again. Yeah, no. And, and that's what, it, you know, we loved because you went in there and showed like, hey, this is all of these steps or these are all the places where someone said something or reporting. Yep. We all should have known. These are all the pre-event indicators because you know, it, it's one of those at the time when you only see one thing, right? Maybe, maybe one, each one, one incident on its own, maybe meant nothing, right? Maybe it was just, oh, well, he went a little too far or he pushed at this, but, but it's when you look at it over time and that's what people forget is, you know, what's happening with this guy over time. And if you die and what's, what you did a great job in that book is you show like, oh, it started to hear, he started doing this. Then it started to escalate to here. Then it started to escalate to a flyover of his daughter's school violating airspace in, in the local area. Civilian airspace, yeah, yeah exactly. civilian airspace. And then, then it's so he had a complete disregard. So, so when you see that over time, that trend line is going. It's escalating. That's the thing. Is like it's not just staying flat. Like, oh, First he we always our boundaries. Yeah. Then we test our boundaries. Then we push our boundaries. All clear warnings. All screaming uh, at anybody that would have listened. So that you know, was in, that alone incident of alone is, is worth an entire book, but, but what, what you, what you also tied in together, which I, I love the way you did this is that, um, you know, the, the big thing, you know, people kind of probably know you for is actually just a few days before that crash, uh, there was an even bigger incident, uh, involving an active shooter at this base that uh, you were, were were very much a part of ending. In fact, you personally put an end to that situation with an incredible pistol shot, which had it not been documented in an investigation, Andy, I would have said, I don't think so, man. That doesn't sound, that sounds a little too out there, but because it has been documented of where it occurred and there was an official investigation and there's photos, it's like, okay, I'll give you that one. But, but uh but but that that's kind of what we what we really wanted to to jump in here uh, w with you about. So, I mean, tell us what happened. You know, uh, uh, on you're on duty one night as uh, you're doing you're you're part of the uh, basically for everyone listening. You know, basically the the police for the Air Force. You're you're an Air Force enlisted guy. You your job is police on an Air Force base. I mean, I guess that's the best analogy to use for everyone to, to understand. So uh, that's your job. So your security, right, from external security, but you also have like some internal policing things that you have to do. So so tell us uh, uh, what happened on on that evening. Okay, sure. Yep, I was in the uh, security forces, security police, which is like an MP for the Air Force. Right. And just to touch on the shot. I didn't believe it myself. He looked a lot closer <laughs> at the time. I had to go and, and walk that distance and from where I stood and where he fell and, and see it for myself. But yeah, it, it was pretty remarkable. I'd, remarkable. I didn't even believe it myself. But yes, on uh, Friday was the day of the 
B-52 crash. And on that Monday, I was working a swing shift. It was a 2, 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. shift, and I was on bike patrol. It was only my second day on bike patrol. I usually was a motorized patrolman, but uh, it was a newly implemented program, and I was um, one of the first at that base to to ride uh, bike patrol. Primarily, I was focused on housing areas. There were several housing areas on the on the base. This incident happened at the base hospital, which was just outside the perimeter fence. And it was, the hospital was surrounded by two military housing areas. And I had finished patrolling the in, inside the base housing and was headed out to the housing areas that were outside of the hospital. And it was a, a warm June day and I was hot. So I stopped at the back gate on my way out to sit in the uh, air conditioning and, and visit with the gate guard for a little bit. And while I was in there, the uh, radio call came over that said there was an individual in the hospital running around with a shotgun. It, initially, people reported that he had a shotgun. It later turned out that he had a an AK-47 variant with a 75-round drum magazine. So when I got the, uh, the radio call, I jumped on my bike and headed down toward the hospital. It was a straight two-lane road that led from the back gate to the hospital. And, and uh, as I was driving were pedaling toward the hospital. Several vehicles were fleeing the area and they people were yelling out their windows that, well, I don't know what they're yelling because by then I'd already experienced some uh, auditory exclusion. Mm-hmm. I was pretty much focused on just getting to the scene. But I could hear or see people yelling at me and uh, I didn't stop to, to figure out what they were saying. I just kept pedaling. As I got closer to the hospital, there was a, a crowd of people fleeing the area. They were wearing civilian clothes and, and hospital whites and air force uniforms and i didn't have a description of the the gunman so i uh, was asking where is he and collectively the group pointed behind themselves and said there's a man over there he's shooting people so i got through the crowd and by then i could hear the uh, sound of gunfire it was reverberating off of the hospital buildings to my right and the housing areas to my left so I coasted up onto a sidewalk in front of a hospital annex, which was an old converted barracks building. And I dumped the bike and got down on one knee and drew my Beretta and yelled at the individual to, to drop the weapon, I identified myself as a police officer. And he continued to fire to his left and to his right. Um, I didn't see that he that he was shooting at anybody, but I could see people taking cover behind vehicles and, and in ditches on either side of him. Um, yelled at him again, and when he failed to to drop the weapon, he fired or aimed in my direction. I returned fire, shot four rounds from a kneeling position, and two of the rounds hit him. One of them struck him between the eyes, and he jumped up, turned around, and fell flat on his back. And it was over from there. It's so you have you have an incident where where you have five dead, twenty two wounded, and I want to make sure that we roll the tape back just as yeah. just as goes here, Brian. Everybody, Andy, that's watching and listening right now is imagining that you're a bike patrol officer 
with what's the new bike patrol. You've got the skin tight suit. You've got the lizard uh, uh, helmet, you know, with the tail on it uh, uh, that you're carrying some ultra cool weapon system. You got the fingerless gloves. You get what I'm saying? All aerodynamic. You, you had the bike that I grew up with in Detroit called the rackety boom. Okay. You were in a uniform. Do you get what I'm trying to say? And that's why you had to pull over and dick around with the air conditioning. And you had an M9 that if you grabbed the upper receiver and the lower receiver and did this, you could shake a bullet out of it because of the way the weapons that were issued back then. And you still are in the moment here, 26 years later, as if it just happened to you, taking four shots at a guy that had fired, you know, 50 some shots. Uh, 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 and I cannot imagine, first of all, the surprise, you must've just, I, I, I would have slammed the, the M nine down, down and, and raised my hand. I can't believe out of four shots, you hit him twice, both of those in the head. But the other thing was, please, what were you thinking when you were yeah. in the air conditioned shack and you were just dicking around and the last <laughs> thing you did was check some doorknobs you get what i'm trying to say i mean every incident i've ever had every incident brian's ever had were the same thing you're going uh big mac or slurpee you're thinking about something completely different did you ever in your mind imagine just before you got that call just before you heard that radio traffic that this would be a life and death situation two minutes away on a bike ride not at that at that time no not at all i had practiced and rehearsed for incidents of lethal force but i never even really considered a, an active shooter. This was well before Columbine or any, even the term active shooter was coined. There was no training right. for it and wasn't really an anticipated event. I had considered, you know, having to use my weapon, but it was more of a one-on-one type situation that I would rehearse for, not an individual trying to shoot and, and kill multiple people in public. Yeah. So I, and, and this, I know it, it probably, I mean, it happened pretty quickly, right? You're, you're riding up to the scene, you're on a bike, which all of a sudden like that had to feel, we've all had that naked really feeling small. before yeah. where <laughs> you're like, oh man, I really wish I could have had a vehicle or a wall or something, but here we go. Right. So you're rolling up on that. And then, you know, like you said, it's chaos. You just, everyone's at least directed you in the right direction. Hey, someone's over there. Uh, you brought up a great, you know, point about this wasn't really something that was, I mean, you have training to engage people and take out threats and do different scenarios, but, but this active shooter thing was not really a threat. And, and I'm sure at the time you're more thinking there's some external threat to the base, right. Coming on versus someone already inside. But, but anyway, you, you know, you pull up just to go over this, you know, it's it's chaotic. He's shooting. People are running. People are screaming. I've heard a lot of the nine one one calls and some of the recordings and stuff. It's complete chaos. And then you kind of just happen to be in the right place where oh there he is. I got to get ready. And then you know did he even hear you at first or was it just you were kind of ready? And then as soon as he looked at you and you knew it was on, like what what was that kind of moment right there? Because you had to at least have locked eyes or seen right on them or something. I mean, were you, do you, do you remember much about that at the time? He had started shooting in the uh, annex building that I was crouched right nearby inside. There was the mental health clinic and he went in down the hall and, and shot the two doctors that he blamed for ruining his career. He was a former airman that was discharged for, for mental health reasons. Um, then he 
left that building and went through the main hospital firing indiscriminately at men, women, and children. And then he chased a group outside the hospital and into the parking lot. And then he started walking down the road that I was on. And that's when I encountered him. He was walking down the road, firing to his left and right as he was pursuing the crowd that I had just ridden through. Um, it ended up, it seemed a lot closer when I was engaging him and, and yelling at him. I don't think he heard me the first time. He didn't react. But the second time, he definitely was, was honed in on me. And, and I think if I had been in a patrol car, he would have seen in me and, I, and identified me as a as a armed responder more immediately. So I think having the bike might have been a benefit. I was able to kind of sneak in there on him. Um, if he had been... If I'd have been in a patrol car, he probably would have lit it up before I'd have gotten out the door. Or I might not have even heard him. I might have just rolled right up on top of him. Um, but I didn't really see his facial expressions or anything. It ended up that the uh, sheriff's investigation determined that from his final rest and from where they found my shell casings, that it was between 68 and 71 yards um, when I fired on him and, and dropped him. So as far as his, his facial expression, I don't know. There were individuals that were hiding. Yeah, you kind of ruined vehicles. that for everybody, too, after shooting him in the head. <laughs> that kind of that kind of changed that math. <laughs> yeah, the 9 mil, the Beretta, I, I liked it. It was a good gun. It was a little bit big as far as the grip went, but I think it was pretty accurate. When you say that I, I might have been surprised that I – that I even hit him with it. I was surprised that I didn't hit him with all four rounds because uh, I figured if I could see him, I could shoot him. And like I said, I thought he was a lot closer. So I was a little bit panicked after the third round that he didn't react, that I was like, what the hell am I missing him? What's going on here? And then I, but I just kept lining up the sights and pulling the trigger. And he finally reacted to the, the fourth round, which must've been the, clearly it must've been the headshot. But there was people um, on the ground hiding under cars that, said that he reacted to, if not my first shot, one of my first two shots, which hit him in the shoulder. They, they said he, he reacted as if he was hit in the shoulder, but it was a superficial wound. It passed through and through. Uh, back in the day, we had to use ball ammo. Weren't allowed to have any hollow points. So unless you hit him right in the, in the head, then it's not going to be an immediate uh, stopping shot well I, I certainly don't want to steal any of the thunder from from the book and i i highly encourage brian and i'm sure you do as well everybody to read this book everybody that has a chance but dean melberg the shooter uh, uh uh there's a lot of of water under the bridge and and he's what psychologically we call an injustice collector and and uh dean uh, throughout his entire life absolutely every incident that he compared uh to his fragile ego system he took notes. And, and uh, as in the book, you do an incredible job of cataloging his own diary. And, and I would tell you that if you've read the book, if you haven't read the book and you're going to read the book and specifically Andy doing all the research you did, if you think his writing was mixed up, imagine what was going on in his head when he was trying to reconcile and, and communicate. And then every injustice that he collected, listen, he didn't get discharged from Fairchild. He got discharged from a different base, but he knew he was coming back. He had made sure that he had put the guns in a bag, got into the cab, 
drove all the way back to exact his revenge on the people he felt wronged him. Now, the good thing about injustice collectors is if you've been trained to see one, if you know what it looks like, Brian, then you'll be able to seek them out and stop them. The bad thing was that other than a couple of postal incidents, and and yes, there were were bad incidents where, where people shot a bunch of people. There wasn't the type of human behavior pattern recognition analysis training uh, uh, going on in our nation during that period. So one of the things, yeah, we'll we'll hop into this because this is what you get into the book is, you know, and that's the thing about especially with someone who's in the military, when you go in the military, everything is documented. I mean, almost every like you get, I mean, every evaluation from training, there's records, there's I mean, that's all it has to get. Peer, like basically what would be considered peer review. I mean, someone yeah. above that person has to go. So, so we'll, we'll get into this, but you do, you did mention it and I just want to hit it because that's a Greg and I said the exact same thing that you actually just said. You said same well, time. The fact that when I showed up on a bike is probably what saved me because he was never in his mind at no point did he ever expect someone on a bicycle to show up, right? You show up with flashing lights and coming in fast and or a vehicle pop like, oh, that's an easy target, right? He's immediately gonna see that and start engaging. But he probably never saw you until no it was too file late. folder for and a copper on bike. So so that's no different than what you see in different like law enforcement stuff where they're stunned by something or they don't really react to something that they should because they don't have that file folder, we call it, right? They don't have that experience, that training or that education that taught them, hey, this could also occur. So, I mean, that that's, you you, you hit it on the head there. We we're like, yeah, I don't know. Probably just didn't, didn't know that it was police showing up on a bicycle. So it's, it's incredible that just what we would think is, you know, man, I want a vehicle. I want to barricade. I want to be able to come up and, and have all this with me. Well, well, that's what they're expecting. So you coming up by pure chance on this. Swift, silent, deadly. I mean, really. It gave you a tremendous tactical advantage. It yeah. really did. Yeah, that's true. Well, what, uh, Greg, Greg kind of started uh, uh, jumping into it. So, so let's go ahead and start talking about this guy because he had uh, so many documented issues and you did a great job in the book. So what happened even with him in, in, in boot camp, right? Cause you go all the way back to, I mean, you go all the way back to high school uh, folks. You got to read this book. Cause you go back into how he acted in high school. You, it, it was interviews with teachers and fellow students and, and people in his community. And they were already there and we're, you're re- I'm reading them along going like, Oh my God, this kid, if there isn't intervention immediately, like immediately and strong intervention, this is going to get bad. It's going to escalate. But then he gets in the military and, and maybe, you know, t- talk a little bit about about this kid uh, and, and kind of who he was and where he came from and, and what led to this. Sure. And anything that we discuss today is not going to spoil the, the book because there are so many incidents oh, yeah. and so many details in it that we won't be able to cover it all today. And just I also just want to make sure that people know that I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, and I'm not a, a aircraft expert. So I let all of the experts speak in this book just by quoting them and interviewing them. I interject very little opinion of my own except toward the end in the uh, afterward. But I knew enough to when I was investigating that what was important and needed to be put in the book for other people to analyze and, and make draw their own conclusions. So yes, um, 
he exhibited some odd behavior in high school that he could have been inter intervened up upon. But when he did join the Air Force, he was in basic training and his drill instructor identified him as an individual that needed some uh, psychological treatment and referred him to mental health. And they, after talking to him for a day or two, uh, recommended his immediate discharge from the military. And if he was to stay in, that he should not be allowed to handle weapons or work with nuclear weapons or anything like that, which pretty much made him ineligible to be in the Air Force because you know, everybody works around mm -hmm. things like that. Um, but his commander, the commander of his basic training squadron overruled that mental health uh, recommendation. Jesus. And that became a pattern throughout his the rest of his career at his tech school and at Fairchild and at uh, the other base that he, that he went to. Um, at his tech school, he had troubles with his roommates. He threatened to set one of his roommates on fire while he slept. And that led to him being uh, seen by mental health and, and his instructors in tech school recommended that he be discharged and, and more than likely so did mental health. But those records were lost because he had access to his medical records. He expunged a lot of the negative uh, records from his personal file. So nobody was ever able to find that. Jeez. But um, even though his instructors recommended he be discharged, the uh, leadership at that school said he had good grades and and he was going to graduate soon enough. So they just let him go and shipped him off to Fairchild Air Force Base where he again had trouble with his, with his roommates and uh, had some perverse sexual behavior that led to uh, his roommates complaining. And he was referred to mental health and, and they uh, again recommended his discharge and it was again overruled until he started to exhibit some, some violent uh, behavior. And the psychiatrist at Fairchild considered him dangerous and sent him to a military mental health facility in, in Texas. And he spent three months there and was diagnosed with a number of different uh, diagnoses like paranoia, schizophrenia, even some schizoid traits. And his, his discharge was recommended, but his mom flew down to the hospital and, and interfered with his treatment until somebody decided to just kind of keep him in and to appease the mom and he was sent to another base in new mexico and so real, and there, real, the pattern. Real, quick, real quick yeah and, and let me just jump in because like i, I just want everyone listening or watching to know like these diagnoses that you're talking about are extremely serious like this isn't just hey you've got some uh, uh post-traumatic stress or you've got some anxiety that you need to work on or you have some uh, uh you know you're you're socially a little awkward and need to develop some skills like th this is way 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 past that these are very serious issues that he had and what you see in a lot of these different cases right i mean god this happens in schools with kids all the time i mean it's just okay he's having some issues or she's having some issues let's Let's just move them along. Let's okay. Well, let's let's pass them off, and they're going to go somewhere new, and and they're going to and, and they just just kick the can down the road. So I just wanted to just break in there real quick, just so everyone no, understands. No, no. Like it, this, it, is, this is this is very too. serious. Yeah, there's another part too, Brian. I think you've touched on one. This isn't happening very often in the Air Force 
on mass at large. You don't get a lot of people that are that are you know uh, in and out of the uh, psych office because they have uh, uh, a social uh, uh, abnormality or they're they're not performing up to speed. This is very rare. And here you've got the one player that keeps coming hot, you know, with the hot potato. Uh, the next thing is if you take a look at it, a lot of those leaders said, "Hey, look, we've invested." thousands if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in this cat of training you know are we ready to tank him now do i have to put my signature on that and obviously looking in hindsight the answer is always yes but brian it's not just a preponderance of evidence it's the level of detail uh, uh, that he's talking about hurting himself and hurting yeah. others and, you know, what, what the mechanisms are. And we all know that that if you have the, that type of speech and uh, uh, you've d- discussed the mechanisms and then you have some uh, portion of that stuff available to him, everybody said this guy was most likely to do this type of crime uh, and nobody was listening. And that because that goes into everything and how it escalated and what was documented, because at yeah. first with some of the started reading some of the stuff and the way he was acting, I was like. Well, I'm not going to lie. This sounds like half of the Marine Corps, but uh, right, but, but from the stick, like, trying to learn. But, yeah. but like this was far beyond that, you know what it what it was, and so you know again, and for those just kind of tuning in and, and watching, talking about this guy who, you know, was a started killing innocent people on this Air Force base back in the '90s, and all the prevent indicators. So, you know, they they're all so well documented, and then we always sit there and go, well, how did this? How did this happen then? You know, how, how did this actually occur? Which is why you, you know, the perfect the, the name of your book, right? Warnings unheeded. Uh, a lot of times people don't want to deal with these issues or they don't want to, they don't necessarily know how or have the tools or, hey, I've got all these other things I got to do. And what they're failing to realize is that these aren't just little minute incidents, right? Every one of these is what we call a pre-event indicator. So, so you, if you look at them that way and go, hey, if this is a pre-event indicator, what is it a pre-event indicator for? And you, it's, it's very clearly to see, you go like, this behavior is going to continue to escalate if it doesn't intervene. So I, I know it continued from there, and I, I kind of just wanted to make sure everyone listening understood you know, the seriousness of what this is. You're talking about this is now the, the very less than 1% of the pop, one-tenth of 1% of the population that needs very serious uh, uh, psychiatric intervention and help, like very serious mental health, not, not talking the, hey, you got to go see someone and talk to them for a while. Like this is at a critical mass already. And now go ahead what they did. They just sent him to a different base, correct? Sent him to a different base and didn't, alert that base or his new commander of his history or or what to look out for or anything. So, yeah, he repeated his behavior there. He had trouble with, with roommates. What he would do is he would masturbate in front of his roommate's girlfriends and just openly masturbate everywhere. And that, that's an odd behavior, but yeah. Well, and, and um, some, not, some not, of my, not in this interview. Some of my but, friends but on Facebook, most, take most, a, right, Greg? Yeah, exactly. Some of my friends on Facebook Live right now are going to be like, I already know. They're gonna be like, wait, so that that's a bad. Don't do that. Don't. You're telling me not to do that. <laughs> but but anyway, can continue. Yeah, his behavior led to uh, him being re- reported to mental health. What happened is he uh, rode his bicycle across the golf course, and my compadres in the security forces went and apprehended him because the base commander happened to be on the golf course and thought maybe he was damaging the greens. So they did a quick investigation, realized that he didn't do any damage and, and he was in an interview room and, and they said, you're free to go. And he had, had just blanked out and was staring at the wall 
catatonic saying that he needed to speak to a lawyer and they tried to convince him that he was not in trouble so yeah he was brought to the attention of mental health after that incident and when while he was being uh, diagnosed and and people were deciding what to do with him his co-workers he worked in a laboratory setting at precision measurement equipment laboratory where they calibrated all of the different tools and electronics from the, in the air force and several of his co-workers had diagnosed or uh, determined that he was dangerous they wouldn't even sit in a room with him or if they were in a meeting they would stand by the door because they they were afraid that he was going to commit workplace violence and he even did a, a dry run he took a piece of equipment or a case for equipment that was roughly the size and shape of a rifle and walked through the entire lab like he was rehearsing a, a workplace violence shooting and people were yelling and screaming that this guy's dangerous but nobody was was listening the ultimately their goal was just to get him out of the air force so he wouldn't be their problem anymore there were some security police that encountered him during these these times where they they found him like in the middle of the night standing in a sprinkler outside of a building staring like at the the legal building where his lawyer was at and they would take him into custody and and try to provide care for him but nobody knew what to do with him the uh, base emergency room couldn't help him and off base hospitals didn't have any psychiatric facilities so they were pretty much uh, at the end of their rope they, they they didn't know what else to do with him other than just let him go off base so eventually he was discharged and returned from new mexico to san antonio texas where he spoke to one of his the psychiatrist that he was diagnosed or uh, treated by when he was on the mental health um, psychiatric ward and pretty much he confirmed with that psychiatrist that nobody else had um, he was in fear that people were spreading rumors about him and accessing his medical records and and sending them to other bases he thought that the doctors at fairchild had called the doctors at the base in new mexico or the his bosses and were spreading rumors about him and that's why he was kicked out and when he went to that psychiatrist in texas and confirmed that nobody else had accessed his records he knew then that it must have been the doctors at at fairchild which it was a misconception but in his mind he had been wronged by them and and was was going to pay them back uh, andy one thing right now andy is that we've got hr people first responders le a dad a mom that are listening on their drive uh, uh, back from lunch or or they're tuning in on the facebook live and one of the things that we try to to help people with is okay so when can I do something? And and we call it the tact freeze, the tactical freeze. And and I always ask people in the class, if you had one bullet or one question or one set of flex cuffs or one phone call, could you have intervened at this point and done something? Now, before you, you go on, I want everybody to understand this wasn't one incident. It wasn't isolated. It was cataloged and processed and people played hot potato because it wasn't fun to deal with. But it wasn't just uh, uh, chronic masturbation. It was the 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 uh, uh, violence. It was the uh, mentally checking out of situations. It was you know uh, uh, saluting uh, uh, coke machines. It was bizarre behavior protracted over time. And and what happened 
is that nobody really wants to dig down to the issue and call somebody and go, hey, I don't know what. And we encourage you call and call early, call often. If it's 911, if it's a, you know, the, you, you know, your supervisor, somebody else. Because what happens is afterwards, we can piece this jigsaw puzzle together with 100% certainty. But while it's going on, you only get a few pre-event indications. And if you don't take decisive action, it's going to lead to a scrum. It's going to lead to a bad situation with a lot of people laying dead on the deck, exactly as it has here. So, so was there something at this point compelling? Because everybody listening, remember, Andy's done thousands of yeah. interviews, thousands of hours of interviews. What was the most compelling thing you found before he shows up at Fairchild? What, what was it for you where you started putting the tea leaves together and going, that's it, this is going to end poorly uh, uh, after, after the fact, during your research? There's quite a few of them. I think the most obvious one was he had a, a friend when he was stationed in, uh, not stationed, but he was in Texas at that mental health uh, psychiatric ward for three months. Once they released him and were figuring out how to send him to the base in New Mexico, he met a girl that he considered his girlfriend and he confided in her that he wanted to, that somebody had done him wrong and he wanted to pay them back and that they were going to have to take him down. And she took that to mean that he was going to get into some sort of incident that would require the police to shoot him. And so far as we know, she didn't report that to anybody until after the fact and no, no action was taken, but there were also some other stalking incidents at Fairchild before he was sent to the mental health uh, facility in Texas where he was, he was obsessed with his uh, roommate and the complaint that he made about him and, and the roommate had threatened, jokingly threatened to throw his alarm clock out the window because it was an old Big Ben wind-up clock that ticked loudly. And <clears throat> when the roommate complained about it, Melberg's, the uh, shooter, said that he couldn't get rid of it because he needed it. And when he, the uh, roommate threatened or joked that he was going to throw it out the window, he took that seriously. And, and it was a, a crime against humanity that that he had threatened his clock. So he f kept following him around and stalking him at his workplace, asking him if he really intended to hurt his clock. Just some, some pretty bad, bizarre behavior. Um, he also had requested some medical records and said that if he didn't get them, that he wished them to be sent to his next of kin, which is kind of an indicator that Next of kin is normally only used, in, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, when when you have already been dead or after you've been killed. So you you brought up some points that that we see across the board, and because I want to get into kind of how how and why you ended up writing the book. But before we get into that, um, you know, you but you you even mentioned you said you know this person that he thought was his girlfriend. You know that that you see in a lot. Of, that's that immediately reminded me of Cho. Uh, the Virginia Tech shooter, you know, he had a girlfriend. She didn't know that she was his girlfriend, right? It's one of those. Um, but the the big thing you you said too is he told her, right? So he confided in her that this is what he was going to do. Maybe not a detailed plan, but he said something, right? He said, "Yeah, I'm, I got to get back at these people." Well, that happens in almost all of these cases. The manifesto. There's yeah, there's a manifesto, or, or now especially with social media. They every they post about stuff and it builds and it builds and then there's always some after where the fact everyone goes you know there's there's some prophetic 
you know, saying or posts that they do. And you're going, well, yeah, they're, they're screaming out to the world. Like all of the, all of this, this, this kid's behavior the entire time is he's screaming out to the world. I want to be heard. I want attention. Everything's about me. Right. And he's screaming the whole time and everyone's just kicking the can down the road, kicking the can down the road. Now we've gotten a little bit better at it, but it's still out there because, you know, like you said, the his his I, I forget I can't remember in the Marine Corps we call it drill instructor but his uh, whatever they call it in boot camp um, you know even him he's going like Tech right at, right there there he's going like hey the, he's a no go like the, this is I've seen this before I've been doing this a while like I know when someone's just having a hard time assimilating and when someone does not belong here and he does not belong here and then it's well hey you're not going to tell me how to do my job get him through the training and then the next guy's going hey. This dude's got problems. This is what I mean, and just screaming. And so when that institution like that, and that comes down a lot of times a lack of leadership and, and, you know, there's a whole bunch of issues into there. It's no different than the B-52 pilot. Same thing. Everyone go, Hey, there's, this is what he's doing. He's screaming out to the world. I'm unsafe at any speed and, and, and no one's doing anything. So, so we see that in all these cases, all the school shootings are, are exactly like that. A uh, workplace violence. It's all out there. People talk about it. People show their weapons. Uh, people tell someone people act stuff out. Suicides the same way. Hey, one of these days I'm going to blow my brains out. Right. And they, they, they act it out. And, and you mentioned the word earlier, it's a rehearsal. So, so you see someone who's literally going to commit suicide. There's a famous actor who did that. He kept doing it on set. And hey, one of these days I'm going to blow my brains out. Well, guess how he ended up doing it. Just the way he acted it out, he put a gun to the side of his head, and and he he blew his brains out. So so people are just screaming this stuff out there. So it kind of brings me to I'm just curious as to you know how and why you ended up writing the whole book about. It. I mean, it's an incredible story and an incredible book. And for me, and I'm sure for Greg, the whole time, like from page one, man, I'm like doing that. Sh- like my neck hurt because I was shaking my head the whole time, going like, exactly. you gotta be and kidding me. You gotta how be many kidding books- me. How many books Marin and I have yeah. that are that are uh, bent pages? What do they yeah, call dog that? Dog ear. Yeah. Yeah. And and mine's all highlighted. And then I have arrows going back to other pages. Andy, like you you're, know? you're getting, you're just shaking your head. So I'm just curious as to what because now you had a career and stuff after the Air Force, and and you've been involved in law enforcement stuff. So so how did you come about you know writing the book and why you wanted to do it? And was there something else, or was there something that occurred? Was it you processing it? Was it what what was that? How come you decided to write all of this? Yes, the, <clears throat> there's the two storylines, the B-52 crash and then the, the hospital shooting. But then there's a third, which is my story, mm-hmm. which is pretty much just briefly interspersed amongst those other two incidents in small chapters. But it's, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it, my in, interest in the incident stemmed from me trying to figure out what happened and why, because I blamed myself for the people who were killed and wounded because I didn't get there in time. Cause I didn't know how long it took me to respond. Um, it felt like it took forever because of the time distortion. So I, I kind of, uh, beat myself up. Didn't really see that I saved lives. I saw that a lot of people were killed on my watch. So I did a lot of investigating to try to come up with, uh, the audio tape, of the police response so I could see how long it took me to get there and it ended up only being a two minute or less than two minute response time from the time that I got the radio call to the time that I radioed in that the individual was down was less than two minutes. So I started to forgive myself there and started to address a lot of the other post-traumatic stress 
symptoms that I had developed. But after I started digging into it and reading all of the reports and talking to people who had known the, the pilot and the shooter, I realized that there was a lot of lessons that could be learned and that a lot of the, uh, the shootings that were happening since then had a lot of similar behaviors and, and traits that people weren't picking up on. So I wanted to document both of the incidents as, as thoroughly as I could so that people could maybe learn to recognize you know, future incidents before they happen. One thing I, I, I read, Andy, uh, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I heard it and then read it. It was about uh, three years ago, and I'm going to try to pull up the quote. I apologize uh, for the delay. You were talking about prolonged exposure to this incident, meaning, uh, uh, folks, that you've got to understand that he took an active role in the incident. He took an active role because he was investigated, and he was, uh, after the shooting, and, and it had to be deemed whether it was a legal shoot or not. Um, uh, then Andy took it upon himself uh, to investigate the Bud Holland and the shooting. There was so much that went on. And uh, somebody asked you about, hey, how did this prolonged exposure to the incident, uh, uh, you know, how did, how did it change you? And you, uh, and this is a quote, you said, every time I wrote or read or reread something about the incident, it had a lesser effect. Well, mm-hmm. the, the incident defined you. And, and, and it's clearly still a part of you and how you feel and how you think 26 years later. And you even mentioned it and it's not self self diagnosed PTSD. The, the emotional toll of an incident like this, uh, never goes away, but your body and your brain. And like Brian said, your electrochemical neurotransmitters find a way of compartmentalizing it until a sight, a smell, a taste, a feel, the wrong question, the wrong movie, something happens in your life and brings it all, all back up again. So as important as it to, is, is to remember that guys like uh, 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 Chuck Remsberg and, and Masad Ayub uh, 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 were there to help you saying, hey, you got to write about this or uh, acting as an example, an exemplar of the type of book. It's important for everybody watching and reading to remember that this is also your therapy. You going on these shows, you writing this book. Do you see it as that? How long was it before you noticed that this was going to be your way to cope with this event? Pretty much immediately. I realized that it was helpful for me to talk about it. I tried talking to people about the, the shooting and how it was affecting me prior to leading to me getting out of the Air Force. I got out after five years after the incident due to stress and anxiety. Um, but yeah, every time I talk with people like you or give a presentation to a group, it gets easier for me to talk about. You can still hear the emotion in my in my voice. Absolutely. Even, but uh, it used to be tears would come to my eyes and I wouldn't be able to speak. So it's gotten a lot easier and it, and it is helpful. And also knowing that people might learn from the incidents and or my experience um, is helpful. Just knowing that there's something positive can still come from it. But yeah, it was it was, a, it was clearly um, good for me to um, meet the incidents and the, the effects of trauma head on by deep diving into the, the pre-incident and talking to the survivors and, and such just to know that they're they're going through a lot of thing uh, a lot of the things that are affecting me even though uh I didn't wasn't shot and I didn't lose a loved one but uh the symptoms of trauma are pretty similar even if the inc- the inciting incidents are different 
No, you're you're absolutely right. Spot and on. so we I do you know, I, I again we deal with this stuff and I know you talk about this stuff a lot and Greg and I have our own experience. So, so I always forget. It's like, Hey, I, I appreciate you sharing that story. Cause I could tell right when you got done taking, you had to take a sip of water. I was like, Oh shit, that's right. Well, I'm, I'm being so callous here. Like, because you know, you wrote a book about this and we're so used to talking stuff that like, I still know anytime I share something personal like that, like, yeah, it, it still hurts. But like you said, like it gets better and then you deal with it and then you get to talk to people and then you get to laugh about stupid shit that happened, you know, that you did that you're like, I can't believe I did the biggest boneheaded thing during the situation, but you know, and, and that's all, that's, that's really, really good for anyone who's been through that stuff. But, um, to talk specifically about the book, I really enjoyed the way you did it. And I think, um, I really wish people understood these incidents in, in the manner in which you describe them. Right. Because, uh, I take, for example, anytime you see something happening with law enforcement in the U S and another person, I don't care what the incident is, whether it's a shooting or, or an arrest or whatever, right. People just take it like, Oh, here's that 30 seconds or a minute of video that I saw and everything. That's all it is. And where you start your book, man, it's great. Cause you're talking about, uh, you talk about you growing up. Uh, you talk about, uh, uh Melbourne growing up. You talk about, uh, the, the, I forget the, but B-52 pilot, like, so, Bud so Holland. yeah, but Holland, sorry. So basically when I'm reading this, I'm going, okay, I'm looking at like three different trains on three different tracks and I know they're all going to intersect at Fairchild. I know that's, I something's happening and this yep. is not, but it, and I love that one because it's engaging and it's cool and I get to go, but I think people don't realize like that's what goes into these incidents. So it's, it's everything about that person's life, everything they've done up to that, that specific day, uh, uh, what's going on in their head, what, how they've been treated, how they haven't been treated. Like these things, it's never just one simple incident. It's literally lives uh, throughout however long coming together at the single point of, 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 you know, where, where they intersect and when one person might have one role and another person might have another role, but, but you, you both were technically, uh, you're both air force, you're both military, both veterans. So, so you're actually, were on the same team at one point, you know what I mean? So, so these are very, very complicated, uh, and complex issues. And I just appreciated the book because even though I sat there and got the, the neck ache, cause I'm going like, Oh, you gotta be kidding me. Oh, you yep. gotta be kidding me. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. Like doing that son of a bitch. Like if people are probably staring at me on the airplane, you're like, what is this guy reading? You know, but because you see <laughs> they it, they do that often by yeah, the way. Yeah. But we, we see it coming, but like, I, I think it just is a great job of, of, of showing how these incidents coalesce, you know, like how, just how the universe was formed. Right. And they all coalesce together and then boom, you have planet earth or boom, you have this impact. Right. So I, I think it's really cool. And I, I really like how you did that, man. So I don't uh, know. How let me, I just, let, let me throw in an epiphany yeah. moment too, Brian, what, my epiphany moment with my signed dog-eared copy of your book. That's got all kind of notations in it was, uh, uh, when I was thinking of Valentine's day, and Nicholas Cruz, Cruz uh, uh, walking into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas uh, School and shooting the place up. Now, your book doesn't touch on that at all, but your book is a lessons learned. Your book is an after-action review that can easily teach you about those incidents. So your shooter uh, uh, took a cab with the gun in a, a duffel bag to the location. The cab driver knew what he had in there. 
He, he knew or should yeah. have known what he had in there. Then he went into a bathroom, unloaded his gear, and then went on a rampage. Uh, uh, on the way out to the rampage, he ran into a couple of other airmen that looked and clearly must have known that he was checked out mentally and that he was carrying a gun. Now, every single one of those things happened in Florida when Nicholas Cruz showed up to shoot up the school. Almost at the same times, running into the, the students, Brian, you'll remember the video where he ran into the fellow students on the stairwell, mm-hmm. told him, better get out of here, it's about to go sideways. Okay, so these incidents have parallels because humans are finite. Uh, humans have uh, uh, an emotional bandwidth. Humans have a human behavior bandwidth. And what you've done to illustrate in the book is you've gone to great detail to tie two completely disparate, two completely different events together but show the psychological and the sociological toll uh, uh, on humans close to them, things that you could have seen. And, and that's what I think the beauty of the book is. That in, and I'll, I'll tell you, I fully intend to get a couple of copies and give them to people in my life that always ask us, oh, I want to do what you and Brian do. I think that's great. How do we get into that life? Well, you know what you start? You start having a really, really, really shitty experience. <laughs> you get what I'm trying to say? And, and like a scab, it starts yeah. growing around that crappy experience, and then it overwhelms your entire you, you, you all, life. It either, either, it either takes over or you, or you, you figure it out. Like you, Andy, Andy, you, you went, all right, what, what the hell am I dealing with? What the hell you, that was your attempt at understanding. And if people just realize that's technically all Greg and I do now, yes. it may get us at a very high level. Sometimes and maybe we're at a low level, it may get super scientific and might get very street level, but like all we're trying to do is articulate experiences. Like, I don't understand. Like, I always tell people, I'm the dumbest knuckle-dragging Marine you've ever met. I don't understand anything. So, therefore, all I do is study to try and figure out what the hell to do. Like, I know I put my left foot, then my right foot. Like, I know how to walk. <laughs> all right, now I know how to run. Like, it's like, how do I think? And, and that's all that all shit in between is what bothers you. And and th- that, w- that, that... So true. That journey you take on in the book is so cool that like you took it from that. I'm just curious as to like, did you, how did you come up with telling the story that way? Did you speak to someone on it? Did they go, Hey, why don't you lay it out? Like, how did you storyboard it that like, because you know, I mean, how you tell the story is just as important as the story and the exactly. details and the lessons much, learned. Much so more compelling. I'm curious as to how you came up with the idea to tell it that way. Well, a lot of people were telling me I shouldn't put both stories in one book that they required their own book on their own. But after seeing the, the, the incidents, the tragedies couldn't be further different from each other as far as what happened, the airplane and the hospital shooting. But the, the incidents that occurred, the, peop- the uh, warning signs and the inactivity of, of leadership, there were so many similarities. And they happened within four days of each other that they had to be told together because like you say, Greg, they're, they're, they're very similar in, in how they were allowed to happen and how they could have been prevented. I knew that some people weren't going to be interested in the, the airplane part and some people weren't going to be interested in the shooting part, depending on who they were, but I wanted to, to be able to reach a broader audience. So I put them both in there, but interspersed the chapters so that you wouldn't get tired of one subject. And by the time you got tired of one, you were into the the next one and uh, also started out the first chapter kind of telling you what's about what's going to happen at the end of the book so that it it piques your interest and then you from that viewpoint knowing that these tragedies are going to occur you you can see the build-up 
to them in the the uh, chapters that lead up to it. You can see what's happening and and what should have been done to uh, stop it or could have been. Hitchcock does the same thing, and I'm putting you with Hitchcock. You haven't made a film yet, Andy, but you may. <laughs> and, and if you are going to do a film, that's that guy that was stalking you. If you are going to do a film, consider me for the role of Hitchcock because I think I weigh about as much. But, but uh, if you've seen any of the Hitchcock's classics, uh, Vertigo just comes immediately to mind. Uh, at the beginning of the film, they tell you everything that's about to happen, uh, the rope. They tell you everything that's about to happen, but it's the intrigue. It's the, it's the emotional toll. It's the, oh my gosh, how is he going to get out of that one? And that's what you did. You, you really weave that together well. And I would admonish, I always tell people, do your homework. And, and, and Brian and I are always screaming at him, training changes behavior. Andy, with all the stuff that you got involved with, it was a two-minute ride on your bicycle, and it was nanoseconds to fire four rounds. Yet the book is 300, almost 400 pages long, and all of those real incidents you synopsize down into little gems. So life is big, and it's vacuous, and it's long. And if you only ever look at at bang, that, that second at bang, you miss everything that comes before it, and you miss all those things after it that you could use to train and teach and manipulate new law enforcement or first responders or HR people so they don't miss and, and Brian, I really think that's the service we're trying to do is we're trying to make sure a parent doesn't miss the signal. We're trying to make sure a teacher yeah. doesn't miss the signal. And, and Andy, you've done in your book just that. And, and uh, the, the great thing, I, folks, I brought up Remsburg, Chuck Remsburg, a uh, uh, great friend, caliber press, genius, used to host on the road weekend uh, things that the coppers could actually afford to get to. Uh, you saw a Rems book, uh, book, one of the early 80s. Uh, he did... Uh, he did 80, 82, uh, uh, all, all the, the stuff before on coffee table, Brian, before the Grossman stuff was out there. <laughs> he was talking and he compiled uh, the best of series of, hey, roll your streamlight flashlight. You can't do that with a Kel light because of where the on and off switch is. I, I've still got my copies. They're, they're, they're worn in too. You also had a chance encounter. Some, I believe it was upside, uh, outside of Seattle with Masada Ayub. Masada Ayub, the, the pioneer of some tactical stuff with flashlights and pistols that everybody loves. Everybody that's a copper uh, bows to Masada Ayub. Um, if not for those encounters, do you think you would have fully realized and gone down this road? Or, or did it help to bump shoulders with some SMEs along the way? Andy, can you tell me about that? Yeah, it definitely helped. Masad. I w was kicking around the idea of writing a book, but probably never would have gotten around to it except for I, I went to a training event with Masad Ayub and, and was talking to him afterwards, and he suggested that I write a book, and that was all the more encouragement that I needed. I started that day. That's great. Um, I'd already been compiling a lot of the research material, but I really started in earnest in investigating. It took me seven years of research and interviews to, to gather all of the information that, that is in the book, but it took yeah, Brian it, seven years to graduate high school. So we understand that kind of time frime and, and the of, dedication required. A lot of, people, required, a lot of people go to college for seven years, they, but they're called doctors. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So no, but, but that just, that process alone uh, was painstaking, but that's what makes the book. You, you, you understand you, you, you don't throw together a bunch of platitudes and a what if, and you know, how, how historic that, that, uh, Beretta should be sending you gear annually. Do you get what I'm trying to say for that damn M9 contract, by the way? <laughs> yeah, uh, know, because right? that's just, a, you had just as equal chance of throwing that at him. Uh, but I'm just saying, you know, uh, your uh, level of detail 
is, is another endearing quality of that book. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's, I'd read quite a few books after this, after I was involved in the incident, read about lots of different uh, workplace violence and other mm-hmm. stories like that, like Columbine and, and other books. And this book that I ended up writing is the book that I would have wanted to read about this incident and others. So I appreciate the, the compliment. I'm glad you liked that, it. That's a, that's actually a great way to go about it. What you just said right there, like, Hey, you know, if I want to know about this incident, I want to know everything and what right. do I want to read about? And that, and that's, that's why I like it. And I'm glad you went ahead because that's the thing is like normal person's going to go, well, look, a B-52 crash and this guy shooting, that has nothing to do with one another. Where Greg and I were instantly like, oh, you've exactly. got to be kidding me. You, you bastard. Help. We even <laughs> called each other at that point. Because yeah. we've, we've murder boarded with our military programs and we've had some really good bosses and shitty bosses. We had, we had one that used to you know, put all the, the photos up from the PowerPoint and go, this like, why is, why is this here? You had us said hello. Because you knew that the intrigue would only build, and you knew that the what at the end of the day, uh, uh, Bud Holland uh, showed stress fractures, and and what you yeah. wanted to do was shine a light on him, and, and you knew that Melbourne had stress fractures. You wanted to shine a light, and you knew that you had human limitations. So you're kind of the thread that binds. But yeah. again, because you're such a humble guy, you you don't really bring it out very much in the book. You even you even sort of uh, mention it in passing a little while ago. But like, there's a third character in the book. Oh, we all know that, but <laughs> yeah. you were so cool about adding that that yeah. it didn't come to the forefront. Look what I did, you know. And 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 I appreciate that as well. I I really think that was a great thing. Awesome. Thanks, Greg. We're we're probably gonna. St- to steal your your case studies you did such a good job with the case study because we we do our own on on different stuff but when you do a case study or you go you got to really sit there and go through the details because the normal stuff that comes out in the news is like okay but then you'll go you got to go through an article and then see one thing and go oh wait a minute what is that then go into and that then you got to go into that and then you find out all the stuff and like you did all that in these cases so this is exactly a perfect case study that we would use in class, literally, and go, all right, we're, I'm going to tell you what a active shooter uh, at a hospital on Air Force Base and a B-52 crash has everything to do common. with each other. And people are going to go, well, I, I don't get it. And then by the end, they go, holy crap, this is about human performance. This is about stress fractures. This is about pre-event indicators. This is about warnings unheeded. You know what I mean? This is like all right there. And, and, once, and once, we could once ever you... get you off of the, the place where you've uh, sequestered yourself yeah, the uh, against the Zompok. Yeah, exactly. Because that, that's just one sheet of plastic behind him. Those are all drawn <laughs> on there. You know what I'm saying? Because he don't, doesn't want to disclose his location. Andy, we'd love to collaborate on something. We'd ha- love to have you drop in on some of our training and tell your story uh, firsthand. Uh, uh, because what we do uh, is is so far left the bank that we don't we, we want to mitigate well before it happens, and and this is a tale of exactly that. Two tales, three actually, if you include <laughs> your life, which we both discounted early on. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I would I would love to uh, participate. I've been binge listening to your podcast so much Aww. that Greg's Greg's voice is haunting my sleep now so yep that's hey, but yeah Shelley, i really appreciate it Shelly, my wife said that for 38 years so far <laughs> she sits up and goes just shut the f up and i'm like oh, thank you yeah well that's good thanks thanks for that and and uh you you know i hope you get the 
clearly you're, you're binge watching. So you get the message. There's still some people that haven't caught on that This is the way you either can get the scar tissue and the skin needs and live through it the hard way, or you can go back and go, wait a minute, take a knee. I can, not the Copernic knee, but I could have had a V8. And, and those moments in your book, uh, are, are compelling. And, uh, I'm looking forward to your next book and here's your next book, uh, Andy. And I'm sure that you, you've got some laying around your next book is post-traumatic stress. How, to survive this incident and have a wonderful life afterwards because you got to understand, man, that it's been 26 years and the 25th anniversary, they had a big thing at Fairchild and, and put up some other stuff on there. But, but you've got a story of survival. I mean, uh, uh, it beat you down. It tore you down. It, it changed uh, the trajectory of your life. We'd love to hear what was after that and not through some, some uh, podcast. You know, write it down, write, write those stories down because you've, you've lived a long life and seen a lot of other people. Yeah. One of the things that the show has opened Brian and I up to is other people with a story. And, and we start somewhere over here thinking this is going to be what the pod's about. And boy, they start disclosing stuff and we find out it's a rich tapestry. And, uh, and I highly encourage you to do that with yours. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, we, we appreciate you coming on, Andy. This has been awesome. Thank you for sharing your story. Everyone, warnings unheeded. Check all the links in the episode details. There, there'll be a link there to Amazon. You can either order hard copy or do the Kindle version. Just make sure you charge your iPad before you get on your flight because I'm an idiot and I did not, but had to wait to get home and finish it. Plus, Marin's going to post Andy's home address and phone number. So if you have any follow-up or any questions that you want, Andy, that'll get you back in the game a little faster than you may have imagined. Or, or, or to some of our listeners. Yeah, or to <laughs> some of our listeners up in the Pacific Northwest who need an area to break contact to. Maybe Andy has a safe haven. Exactly. Because it's getting a little, uh, getting more than a little crazy up there. But Andy, thanks, man. We we really appreciate coming on, man. It's such a cool story. I love how you weaved everything together. You had your own personal story in there, which makes sense. Like just, I mean, I literally sat there and that's the best analogy I could give. It's like watching a train leave three trains, leave three separate stations and, and they're going, Oh, these are going to intersect. And when they intersect, Oh man, like, and you're just watching them slowly go along. And so it, it really, it hooked me right away, which, which I love. And then, you know, all the deep, the, the detailed research that you did is what's important because you know I, you're you're bringing forward lessons learned. You're saying, "Here's the lessons. Here's where we failed. Let's fix it." Okay, and and that's that's the whole beauty of it. It's not calling people out. It's not saying, "Hey, you're a terrible human," or "You missed that." It's like, look, here's all of them. So so if, if you're gonna put it on someone, one obviously the the shooter or the pilot that 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 did this, right? It's their responsibility. But then everyone along the way that had an interaction had a, had, had their, had a way, had some responsibility for letting this go through. And I, and once we all accept responsibility, that it's our fault, not, not, you know, point the finger at someone else that, Hey, no, we're all involved in this. I, I think we'll get better at, at dealing with them, but that, that might take a lot. I don't know. People don't like accepting yes. responsibility. So. Yeah. That's, that's one other thing that, that I took from from all of this research is that people made the the easy hard decision or should have made the easy or the the um hard right decision was not made in quite a few instances mm -hmm. and it even if you think your job is is meaningless there was a couple instances where just a, a paperwork error allowed this incident to progress 
or somebody checked the wrong box. So attention to detail and and in everything you do, you never know what it's going to uh, lead to if you if you don't uh, pay attention and, and do the best you can. Nice, spot on. And, and Brian, there's a whole nother show here. Obviously, you saw that. And Andy, we'd like to, to have you think about coming on again. Marin and I, one of the things that we carry around, uh, we carry our PFACs with us everywhere we go, whether it's on a plane, in a boat, on a goat. Uh, we always carry our door wedges around with us. We carry our tourniquets around with us. We got just a small little kit we carry all the time that we tell people about on almost every show. And, and the whole reason about it is that you can't predict everything. And, and as far left to bang as you're operating, you might miss something. And if you do miss something, you can take dra- dramatic first aid steps like we're taking in this incident, life-saving first aid steps. And you don't got to be an ER doc uh, to save a life. And and here, you don't have to be a psychologist to listen to Andy's story. You don't have to be a doctor to learn from it. You can be just a common mom, dad, HR person. And Brian, you can walk away with a lot of great info. Yep. Uh, all good stuff. Appreciate it again, Andy. Everyone pick up the book Warnings Unheeded by Andy Brown. I will have all the links up in the episode details, take you right to the place where you can purchase it. So thank you so much for tuning in and for your comments as we went along. Really appreciate everyone. And don't forget that training changes behavior. Thanks for tuning in, folks. If you would like some more information about what we talked about today, you can head to the Left of Greg Patreon site where we've added some more information about what we discussed as well as some examples of how you can practically apply some of the lessons learned. Please remember to tell your friends about the show and follow us on Facebook at HBPRA. Thanks again and be safe.